0: If all we can do is plant as believers in water, and it is God who gives the increase, if you know that the God of this world, small g, the devil, has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving and only God can open those eyes, if you understand that no one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws him, then you will pray.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures. The Bible Teaching Ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Buford, South Carolina. We are in the national section of our study of the Book of Romans. This consists of chapters 9, 10, and 11. Pastor Brogy has noted that the national section deals with Israel's past election, present rejection, and future restoration. And as we move into chapter 10 today, we'll begin to look at how it is that Israel rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in a message entitled, Zealous But Rebellious.
0: Would you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10? If you are new with us, we've been working our way chapter by chapter through the book of Romans. And Romans has really been rightly called the Constitution of Christianity. Because in Romans, every major doctrine as it relates to the church and even Israel is unfolded for us. Now, as you're finding that text, let me ask you a question What is man's greatest need today? Is it education? Is it social reform? Is his need in the realm of economics? Is it in healing? What is man's greatest need? Well, may I say to you clearly and succinctly, man's greatest need is salvation. Jesus Christ did not come primarily as an educator. He did not come primarily as a healer. He did not come primarily as a miracle worker or a social worker. He came as a savior for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And when Paul wrote to young Timothy in the faith, he said, it is a trustworthy statement. It deserves your full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so this morning, it is for this reason that we will see the brokenness of Paul's heart. In a moment, we're going to read our text, but it opens up with these words, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. When Paul looked at his Jewish brethren, his heart bled because he knew that these were people in need of salvation. And if you're listening to me today and you're not absolutely sure that in the next breath you take, if it were your last breath, that you would be in heaven, then let God speak to you today. If you lack assurance of your salvation, let God speak to you. Help, ask him today to help you to know how you can know. Because if you die without an assurance, the Bible teaches you will die forever lost. And if you're here today and you think you're saved, make sure that it is a true and right assurance because many people, Jesus said in the final judgment, who would say they are born again Christians, he will deliver to them the sad news, depart from me, accursed ones in the place prepared for the devil and his angels, because I never knew you. And if you are here today and you have a true and right and real assurance of salvation, again, let the Lord minister to your heart because we are to share this message and part of this text will equip us to do the work of the ministry. Now you can see the title of this morning's message is zealous, but rebellious. And there are many people like that today. Let's read our passage, Romans chapter 10. We're going to study today the first four verses. Brethren. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, let me take just a moment and set the context because it's critical to understanding our passage. By now, you know the book of Romans has three major divisions. Chapters 1 through 8 is the doctrinal section, 9 through 11, the national section, and then chapters 12 through 16, the practical or applicational section. Right now, we're in 9 through 11, the national section, and the subject is the people of Israel. And here in 9 through 11, he's helping us to understand why it is. That Israel is in unbelief. In chapter 9, as you can see on the chart, he deals with Israel's past election. Out of all the peoples of the world, how God chose the people of Israel to bring the Messiah. And by the way, just as he used Israel to bring about the first coming, he's going to use Israel to bring about the second coming. But the ninth chapter we saw dealt with Israel being elected as a nation. We saw it as a very misunderstood chapter of Scripture. And so men like Calvin and Luther and others who really said some awful things about Jewish people, who said that God was done with the people of Israel, that the church was the new Israel, that chur- the church, the body of Christ had replaced national Israel and God no longer had a plan for the Jewish people, they read chapter 9 through a different lens. And so we saw, I know, the focus is national election. In chapter 10, he deals with the subject of, notice, Israel's present rejection. And that's where we're going to begin today and for the next several weeks. Why is it that Israel today is an unbelief? Why is it that most Jews are not Jews for Jesus? They're just a minority of Jews. There's about 200,000 Jewish believers here in the United States. You can go to Israel, and in virtually every city and community, there's a congregation of messianic jews but out of 14 15 million jews they represent just a remnant and then when we come to the 11th chapter we will see that god will deal with israel's future restoration that god is not done with the people of israel that god has not forsaken israel that God is going to bring Israel to genuine faith. It's at, at a future time in human history. It's called in the Old Testament, the time of Jacob's trouble. and the New Testament, it's called the Great Tribulation. But Israel is the only nation in the world that has a complete history. It's past election. Its present rejection and its future restoration are described in these chapters. So again, in chapter 9, you should have written over that chapter Israel's election. Over 10, you should have Israel's rejection. And over 11, you should have Israel's restoration. But we've seen that this is an important section of Scripture, that it's not a parenthesis in the book of Romans, as some have argued. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They're added almost a millennium after the Bible was completely finished and inspired to help us to find our way around the Scripture. But remember, the end of chapter 8 deals with the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, if nothing can separate us from God's love, and if God, as Jeremiah the prophet said, loved the Jewish people with an everlasting love, then why does it appear that God has forsaken and abandoned the Jewish people? If God can't bring his ancient people into salvation, what makes us think that he can secure us? And so Paul, among other things, asks and answers that question as he deals with the Jewish people. Now these are people who were religious but who were lost. They were zealous but rebellious. And they represent many people in our day who are the exact same way. And so I want you to see three characteristics of the Jewish people in Paul's day. And three characteristics of the Jewish people for the most part in our day and of most peoples in the world who, are not, who have never been born again. Three simple characteristics. Characteristic number one, there in your note-taking outline, the Hebrew people had zeal without knowledge. These were people who had zeal without knowledge. Again, these divisions are artificial. They are helpful in that when I turned to, told you to turn to the 10th chapter, you knew where you needed to go today. I didn't say, well, turn the scroll 50 times until you come to this phrase. No, you know exactly where to go. But sometimes they can be distracting. So remember that chapter 10 and verse 1 comes out of what he has just said at the end of chapter 9. And at the end of chapter 9, he gives us a little bit of divine irony. Notice, if you will, verse 30 of chapter 9. Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Now, as you know, the term Gentile can be used in one of two ways in the Bible, to describe someone who is not a physical descendant of Abraham, namely a non-Jew, or it can be used as a synonym for just a pagan. And the two go together because typically the non-Jews were the pagans in the first century. So Jesus said, don't pray like the pagans, like the ethne, literally. Don't pray like the Gentiles who think they will be heard because of their the many things that they say. So here's a picture. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness... Attained righteousness. So here you have this Gentile walking down this street, carefree, hands are in his pocket, he's whistling, and all of a sudden he looks down on the ground and he sees a magnificent treasure. And he picks it up and he says, look, look what I have found. The word attained is used in that way outside of the Holy Scripture of someone who just stumbles upon a treasure, someone who just picks up a wonderful treasure that they weren't even looking for. And Paul uses that picturesque word to really describe the Gentiles because here were people who were not pursuing righteousness, but all of a sudden they found righteousness. And in contradistinction, notice what he says of the Jews in verse 31. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. So here's the irony. The Gentiles weren't even looking for salvation, but they found it. But here's Israel in hot pursuit of salvation, year after year, month after month, day after day, hour after hour, looking for salvation, and they trip over it and they stumble into hell. Now, I say it's ironic because the very thing they're striving for is the righteousness of God. The very thing they are looking for, they stumble over. Now, why did the Jews in Paul's day miss salvation? Why do religious people, Gentile and Jew alike, miss salvation in our day? Well, the Jews in Paul's day missed it because they didn't see their need for a personal sin-bearing Savior. Two pictures, as you know, of Messiah in the Old Testament. One is a suffering servant. The other is a sovereign king. And if you're under the threat and the heel of Rome and you are an oppressed people, you would gravitate, especially if you'd become self-righteous, you would gravitate to the picture of Messiah where he is sovereign king, where he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that righteousness. Paul then asks and answers the question, why didn't they arrive at that righteousness? Here comes the answer, verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Man in his depravity, man in his fallenness, has a way of taking simple, plain truth and turning it around 180%. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. But what do people do today? They f- seek things first, and God's righteousness lasts, and they wonder why their life is so messed up. Let me give you another example. The Bible says, believe and be baptized. But what have we done? We've taken a truth and we've turned it totally around, reversed it. We baptize little infants and later ask them to believe. Where in the Great Commission. God says, believe and then be baptized. And so there's no illustration, not a single example in all of Holy Scripture of infant baptism. Let me give you another example. Jesus said of little children, let the children come unto me. For such is the kingdom of God. He told us in Matthew 18:3 that we need to become like children. but you let a child who comes to an adult very often in our day who says, "Well, I want to know about the Lord Jesus." We say, "Well, you can't become a Christian until you're confirmed. Or we tell other children, "Well, let me ask you some questions," and we ask them all these adult questions that have very little to do at all with salvation, and because they can't answer them, we say, "Well, you're just not ready yet." When in reality, God says the adult needs to become like the little child. It's strange the way man takes a simple truth and totally destroy, destroys it and distorts it. Is it any wonder that Isaiah would say on behalf of God, "For my thoughts? are not your thoughts. In my ways are not your ways. And so Paul tells us here in verse 31 of chapter 9, the reason the Jews did not get salvation is because they were working for a gift. They were working for righteousness. But righteousness is not something you work for. It is a gift that is to be received. Suppose I came to your home and you fixed me a marvelous dinner for me and my family tonight. And when it's all over, I pull out my wallet and I say, well, how much do I owe you? Now, that would be an insult. And here the Lord God, he says, you are hopeless, you are lost, you are bankrupt, you are doomed, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But with my own precious blood, I have purchased your salvation. And then you say to God, God, how much do I owe you? What do I need to pay you, God? How much works do I need to do? And the Bible says your righteousness is his filthy rags. Your righteous deeds, not your worst deeds, but your best deeds in the sight of an absolutely holy God are like filthy rags. And the Jew in Paul's day missed that like many religious people do in our day. And so notice what he says in verse 32. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, what does that mean? Well, we studied last time that the term stumbling stone was an Old Testament metaphor for the Messiah. You might want to jot down a couple of verses. We ran out of time and put them in the margin from last time. Uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. Write that out in the margin, if you would, next to verse 32. 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, And also write out in the margin Galatians 5.11. Let me read 1 Corinthians 1 to you. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. Likewise, in Galatians 5 and verse 11, Paul refers to the cross of Jesus Christ as a stumbling block to the person who is trying to earn or work his way into heaven. Now we learn in the New Testament that the message of Jesus Christ crucified on a cross as a payment through innocent, sinless blood for your sin to many people is a stumbling block. To the religious man, he just cannot get it. And Why does he stumble over the simple message of salvation? Because he is prideful and he is self-righteous. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 2. And if you know the book of Galatians, the Galatians had foolishly allowed some false teachers to come into the church. And they didn't add a whole plethora of works on top of what Jesus did as a way of salvation. They added just one single work. They said in addition to what Jesus did, you need to do this one additional thing. And Paul said, to add anything is to preach a different gospel. And so he said, "Look, even if we are an angel from heaven came and delivered a message contrary to the original message given, that person is to be accursed." And then he'll say in Galatians 2:21, "I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly." In the living Bible, it paraphrases it in this way: "I'm not one of those who treats the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. If you're listening to me, say amen. amen. Listen, I don't want you to miss it. It is so simple. It is so profound. If we could have earned our way to heaven, then Christ died in vain. But his life was not taken from him. The scripture said that he would give it. And the fact that the Old Testament prophesied Messiah would die, that he would be pierced through for our iniquity, the fact that he did die is proof positive that you cannot work your way to heaven. Now, some people think that's just too easy. It's just too easy to put your faith in Christ alone in his work to be saved. When in reality, the Bible teaches it's the hardest thing you'll ever do because it shatters all human pride. And so many a person have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And to give biblical support that this is what the Jews did and that the prophets said they would do it, he quotes two verses from Isaiah. Notice verse 33. Just as it is written, and you'll see the change in typeset here in the NAS, letting you know it is an Old Testament quote. Behold... I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. I lay in Zion, right over that word Zion, Jerusalem. I hope you know that the word Zion is just a synonym for the city we call Jerusalem. Behold, I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling. God laid down in Zion, his son on a cross, crucified there outside the city of Jerusalem who became a stumbling stone in a rock of offense. God laid down his son in that city, and everyone here this morning must decide how they will relate to that rock. He will either be your foundational rock for salvation, where he becomes a stepping stone into heaven, or he will become a stumbling stone into hell. You will either embrace him and trust him, or you will trip over him. And it's in that context, that Paul then makes this statement in chapter 10 and verse 1 into our passage. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. The J.B. Phillips translation was the very first paraphrase ever done in English in the 1950s. Phillips rendered this verse with these words. My brothers, from the bottom of my heart, I long and pray to God that Israel may be saved. Now, please note two truths from this verse of Scripture. Number one, the Apostle Paul prayed for lost people. He believed in the possibility that any lost person could be saved. Second, I want you to see that he had a zealous concern for those who were lost. Now, we've spoken, I did seven sermons on the doctrine of election from chapter 9. And listen, wherever you come down on the doctrine of election, here's the bottom line. If your theology has taken away your zeal, your passion to pray and to win the loss, then your theology is wrong. It's just plain wrong. You've misunderstood Romans chapter 9. Paul said his heart's desire is for their salvation. Now the word desire could be translated good pleasure, my passion, my satisfaction. Paul's saying I would find nothing more pleasing in my life than to see my Jewish brethren come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing statement, especially when you consider from the Acts of the Apostles what the Jewish people did to Paul. They stoned him. They forsook him. They beat him. They humiliated him. They ridiculed him. They hated him. They hunted him down. They shunned him. They scorned him. You name it. And you would have thought that Paul would say, okay, God, enough is enough is enough. Just let him go. But that's not his heart. His heart, in spite of all the things that they did to him, was for their salvation. There's no resentment in his heart. There's no desire for revenge. Look again in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for them. That's why we read the end of chapter 9, because the them, the antecedent, is the Jewish people. My heart's desire for the Jewish people is for their salvation. Now listen, if God had predetermined it all in such a way that the elect are automatically saved, then why pray at all? Now listen, I believe in the end all the elect will be saved because the Bible teaches that. But we saw that God in his foreknowledge chose people. And we saw all the mental gymnastics that people do in our day with the word foreknowledge. But I gave you four biblical examples where the word progonosco means prior or before knowledge, indisputable. But people want to twist the meaning of the word foreknowledge. Listen, God in eternity passed, looked down the corridors of time. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You had no capacity in and of yourself to come to Christ. So God took the initiative. God wooed you. God worked in your heart and God saw how you would respond. And based on that, God elected people. But listen, if it's all predetermined, why even pray? but knowing that it is God who must work because we're dead in our trespasses. If there's none who seeks God, no, not one, and so God must seek us first. If all we can do is plant as believers in water and it is God who gives the increase, if you know that the God of this world, small g, the devil, has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving and only God can open those eyes, if you understand that no one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws him, then you will pray. You will pray for those who are lost. Now, the word pray here can be translated big. In fact, it is translated the exact same word in a different verse in Luke 9 and verse 38. There, there was a man with a desperately ill child, and he said, teacher... I beg you to look at my son for he is my only boy. There was just a sense of desperation in that father's heart. And there's a sense of desperation in the heart of the Apostle Paul as he prays, knowing that God is sovereign and only God can save. Now, I've been sharing my faith for a long, long time. And I've learned three key things about evangelism if I've learned anything. Number one, key number one, pray passionately for lost people. Key number two, pray passionately for lost people. Why? Because the effectual earnest prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And number three, pray passionately for lost people. I was in India last week. I was invited to do a pastor's conference and Had about 135 pastors from different parts of the country and training them on how to share their faith and how to win Hindu and Muslim and Sikh people. And I'm telling you, I met all types last week people worshiping at idols, 1.3 billion people stuffed into a country about a third larger than the state of Texas. They are everywhere. And when you see some of the truths and some of the beliefs that some of these people have embraced, you know your only hope is to pray. Pray, 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 pray. Then go and tell and expect God to work. But listen, knowing that God is the one who must first work, knowing that God alone can give the increase, it really is freeing when you think about it. Because you realize you don't have to know all the answers before you can approach someone. You don't have to worry, well, maybe I just said something a little bit wrong and I messed it up a little bit such that you're responsible for their damnation. No, 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 no. God is sovereign. He works. And notice he says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God. His prayer is to God because God is the only answer and only God can answer. And again, that being true, when you introduce someone to Christ, you realize God gets all the glory. I went there, among other things, to reach some of the people from India for Christ, and they asked me to do a service last Sunday afternoon, and a number of Africans who are refugees from all these countries that are war-torn were coming together, and they were searching for the Lord, and this pastor said, "There's, there's 25 Africans, most of them don't know Christ. He said, they're searching, they're looking. They've come from animistic backgrounds and other kinds of false religions. And I shared the simple plan of salvation and 14 of those men and women gave their lives to Christ. I mean, that that was the hand of God. That's something God did. Many, many, many a day I leave this campus. And when I get in my car, I thank the Lord that he gave me the privilege to introduce someone to the Savior, Listen, it is his work. And when you understand that conversion is a work of God and not a work of man, you give God all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. That's man's greatest need. You say, well, didn't the Jews need escape from the oppression of Rome? Of course they did. Didn't they need some justices made right, some injustices turned into justices? Absolutely. But Jesus said, remember, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and in the end he forfeits his soul? In other words, what good is it if you have world peace and in the end you die and drop off into hell? What good is education? What good is prosperity? What good is justice upon the earth if you never meet Jesus Christ in salvation? And I believe we've lost our focus in mainline evangelicalism today.
1: The mainline evangelical church has, for the most part, lost its zeal in sharing the hope found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we continue tomorrow, Pastor Brogy will examine why that is. To listen again to today's message entitled, Zealous But Rebellious, download the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. There you can listen to the entire Romans series, or today's message, Zealous But Rebellious, program number ROM50. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we continue our look at Israel and even America's rejection of Messiah. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.